What's going on, everyone? It's Friday, May 27th. I'm Zachary Crockett. I'm here with Rob Litterst, and you are listening to The Hustle Daily Show. Today, we're talking about the latest housing trend, the rise of demand in so-called second-tier cities. I promise we don't mean that as an insult. And it may have something to do with Gen Z buyers. And also on the docket, we're getting into the story of an ice cream cone monopoly that you probably have never heard of. Before we get into that, a couple quick things you should know about in the business and tech world. A few weeks back in its first earnings report since going public, BuzzFeed fell a little flat. Revenue missed investor expectations and losses also jumped up to about $45 million. Now, the company's been offering voluntary buyouts across its investigations, science, politics, and inequality desks in an effort to downsize and reorient around, quote, news for Gen Z, end quote. Nobody really seems to know what news for Gen Z means, but that seems to be par for the course in the media world, I guess. The NFL announced that it will join the streaming wars in July with its own service, NFL Plus. The service will start out with a focus on live games and will cost around $5 per month. Justin Timberlake sold his song catalog to Hypnosis Songs Capital for $100 million. That's a big one, but it pales in comparison to some other recent catalog sales. Bob Dylan got around $200 million for 600 songs back in 2020, and Bruce Springsteen just last year got $550 million for his catalog. Broadcom officially announced that it is going to purchase VMware for $61 billion, making that one of the biggest tech acquisitions in history. That deal is going to reportedly help Broadcom diversify away from its core semiconductors business into enterprise software, which, as we all know, can have slightly larger margins. Aura, the maker of a wearable ring that measures sleep activity, has partnered with Gucci to make an 18-karat gold smart ring that will retail for $950. What? Why? (laughs) Yeah. Why? A hundred. Why is that even on our list? (laughs) 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 All right. Uh, And and lastly, uh, this day in history in 1937, the Golden Gate Bridge opened to the public for the first time in San Francisco. All right, Rob, let's talk housing here. So something is brewing in mid-sized cities across the U.S. What's going on? So, Zach, as somebody who lives on one coast, you, I am also one that lives on another coast. We talk a lot about the rising prices for homes. Oh, yeah. And this rise of mid-sized cities is very much related to that. So just to kind of break it down a little bit and, and where this came from, the lending company Lending Tree mm-hmm. basically put together a report where they essentially scanned mortgage offers from 890,000 LendingTree users and ranked the cities by how many mortgage offer requests came from Gen Z, which in this report they're defining as people that are 18 to 24. Essentially what they found is Gen Z accounted for only 10% of the home buyers across America's 50 largest metro areas in 2021. So across mm-hmm. the 50 biggest cities, right? So this is measuring demand in-housing from Gen Z people. Exactly. It's basically, it's looking at different metros and seeing what percentage of their total mortgage offers or the people that are requesting mortgages are in Gen Z. So essentially like the ones that are going to rank the highest have the highest percentage of Gen Z home buyers, essentially. Yeah. So where are we seeing Gen Z buyers looking right now? So we talked about coastal cities to start. And if there's kind of one trend that we're seeing, it's moving inland. So the number one city was Salt Lake City, Utah, which had 17% of its mortgage offers coming from Gen Z. Louisville, Kentucky came in second with 16%. 
And Oklahoma City, Oklahoma came in third with 15%. So 17% of all mortgage offers in Salt Lake City are coming from Gen Z kids. Exactly. Okay, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, that really is. Yeah, I mean, if yeah. you're thinking about it, like they're 18 to 24. It's like one in five buyers right. is, is under the age of 24 years yeah, old. Yeah, it's insane. I just looked this up. Salt Lake City has the youngest median age of any major city in the United States. Really? The median resident is only 32 and a half years old in Salt Lake City. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So 17%. How does that stack up to other familiar cities like like NYC or San Francisco, say? Yeah. So that's a great question. And if you wanted to look for what percentage Gen Z makes up of those cities, you would have to scroll to the very bottom of this list that LendingTree put together. So <laughs> sure. New York City, San Jose, and San Francisco were essentially the three last place cities. All of them came in under 5% from mm -hmm. Gen Z, which isn't surprising at all. If you're in Gen Z and you can afford a place to live in New York City, a place to buy, then more power to you. That's right. insane. Yeah. And again, you know, this is just a measure of home ownership, not like exactly. youth in the actual city. So when you think of like young kids moving to New York City or San Francisco after college, uh, they would not be included in this data set. This is strictly home ownership. That's exactly right. And like when you think about young kids moving to New York or San Francisco, I feel like you think of them basically like piling into a bunk bed with like six other kids that are their <laughs> right, age and paying right. like, you know, some fraction of the rent because it's so freaking expensive. So yeah. yeah, it definitely tracks and makes sense. But what makes this super interesting to me is like, what if Gen Z falls in love with these kind of inland cities and just end up staying there? Like it, it would just be interesting to me if say 20 to 30 years down the road, there's this new kind of wave of cities that are kind of like the epicenters of business because of this kind of housing market and, and what happened. Not that anyone's like taking over New York or San Francisco, but like I could see these cities really rising in stature and becoming much more interesting places to move and work and live. I mean, we've already seen this happen a little bit with kind of the, the Silicon Prairie that's emerged in recent years. Yeah. You, know, you see a lot of young startups migrating to the Midwest and starting companies in places like Columbus, Tulsa. Ohio, or Tulsa, Oklahoma. Exactly. Totally. Yeah, Silicon Prairie. I don't know. I guess, you know, like you said, we're, we're both coastal dwellers, but it always shocks me to see the stats on this. 127 million people in the U.S. live on coasts. Wow. So you have quite literally 40% of the U.S. population living on less than 10% of the land in the U.S. That's insane. When you say it like that, that's like really, really crazy. I mean, it, yeah. it just makes you realize how much land in the middle of the country is unoccupied. Mm -hmm. Like there's just so much more room for growth there. So I was going to ask you this because my wife and I, we live outside Boston. We live in like very much like deep suburbs, right? It's a very small suburban town, but we are always kind of like daydreaming and entertaining kind of this idea of moving to a mid-sized city that's still coastal, but just not Boston, right? So something mm. that's kind of like in the area, like we've talked a lot about Portland, Maine, which has this like thriving food scene. It's just got like a really cool vibe to it. Portsmouth, New Hampshire is another mm -hmm. one that's kind of the same way. It's super cool and growing. And then Burlington, Vermont is a little bit further inland, but that's where University of Vermont is. It's like this super cool kind of hippie town. Super crunchy. Yeah, very crunchy. You, uh, Crunch Central. You know Berkeley, so I, I think you probably know Burlington. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more farmer's markets than grocery stores probably. Exactly. Are there any towns like that out by San Francisco or just in California or just in general that you've entertained moving to or kind of thought about? Oh, man. You know, 
California is just so pretty much the entire contiguous Bay Area is just developed at this point. But, yeah, you know, if I were completely untethered, I might consider moving somewhere like Mariposa. Um, Like Mariposa is this tiny town 45 minutes outside of Yosemite National Park. Nice. It's like kind of this this little ranch town. It would be a very cool place to retire someday. Damn, that sounds cool. And properties are still very affordable there. A lot of tech people are starting to kind of discover areas like that and move all the way out now that people can work remotely. You know, while we're on the topic of housing, I recently read that the supply of houses on the market jumped up 9% last week compared to the same week last year. No way. You've seen a lot of talk that maybe we're starting to see just a tiny pullback in the housing demand as a result of the higher interest rates. Yeah. But I also feel like every time someone says there's a tiny pullback, things get even crazier. So Right. We'll just have to see what happens. It's funny because I feel like there are people that have probably been kind of like watching all these prices go up that own homes and they're like, oh, I'm just going to let it keep going. I'm not going to sell until it hits the top. And now it's like hitting the top and their homes are out there on the market and it's like, oh, I listed it for way too much. Well, there's apparently a bunch of Gen Z kids out there with like their finger hovering over the button on Zillow. Exactly. Oh, man. (laughs) Well, complete shift here, but let's talk ice cream. You a cone guy or a cup guy? Cone guy all day, through (laughs) and through, which is funny. Like, I definitely don't like to get messy. Like, I tend to go for the option that's cleaner, but I freaking love ice cream cones. I'll always go cone. What about you? Totally same. I'll I'll take a cone any day. I'm more of a, uh, what's the name? Not the sugar cone, but the waffle cone. Yeah. I'm a waffle cone guy. Love waffle cones. Well, if you're a cone person like us, you've probably seen this company somewhere in the wild or maybe even consumed one of their cones but i had i had no clue just the sheer scale of this company rob you want to tell us about this ice cream cone monopoly yeah this is one of my favorite concepts that we get to talk about where it's just super super niche monopolies like companies that just essentially own a random space Mm -hmm. and it turns out that there's an ice cream cone monopoly that I had no idea about. And I bet a bunch of people didn't. And if you're a cone person, then we're all probably eating the same cone. So I feel like I've, I've seen this company in the wild somewhere. I just Googled it. It's like a red box. Oh, yeah. With, with these blue and white stripes up top. It's got a majestic picture of these like three cones on the front cover. Exactly. So what's the backstory here? So the company is called Joy Baking Group. It was founded in 1918 by a pair of Lebanese immigrants, and the company almost went under when a fire hit their warehouse in 1965. Ah, and that put some fire in their belly. (laughs) Yes, it did. Because since then, they've been literally eating up the rest of the industry. So to throw some numbers at you, Joy Baking Group produces 15 million to 20 million cones per day during its busy season, which is February to July. It also accounts for, I think the number is 43% directly for the amount of cones that are sold in US stores, but they also have a private label business. And so one expert estimated that they actually make up 60 to 70% of cones that are sold in the US stores. (laughs) For context there, Keebler is the next closest competitor and they make up about 14.5% of store sales. So Keebler is like a huge company. Yeah. 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 So they're crushing Keebler. Yeah. Keebler's got tons of elves in their workshop making up ice cream (laughs) cones and they can't compete with Joy. Joy has got an absolute strength stranglehold on the ice cream cone situation. Do we have any insight on on how they got that stranglehold? Yeah. So 
What's interesting here is making cones is a lot harder than it seems. And this article, which talks about joy, which I want to give a shout out to the New York Times. This is where we found this. They had this great Mm -hmm. piece on it. And they were talking to somebody who owns an ice cream shop who had actually tried to make their own cones, but they would literally run out of cones over and over and over. And they take a while to make. They're harder to make than you would think. And so they literally just gave up that effort and started buying their cones from joy And this is one of the reasons that Joy has gotten so big because it's a lot harder than it seems. It takes a lot of scale. It takes a lot of space and it takes a lot of equipment. Mm. So Joy has four monster factories across the United States that have all these high-tech gadgets from ovens to pipes that move batter from room to room to robot arms that help package the final product. (laughs) It's like this crazy operation. And just for context, their flagship factory is 530,000 square feet. So it's just absolutely massive. And what's happened is over the years, the costs required to make cones and kind of invest in this operation get really big. And so a lot of these smaller cone makers either have gone out of business or they've sold their business to Joy and many times kind of against their will. They don't want to sell to Joy. They just can't really continue to maintain their business with the costs Mm. and margins. My gosh. And and just for context, 530,000 square feet, that's like roughly six or seven Costco warehouses. Yeah, that is combined. That is absurd. <laughs> I didn't know that reference. That's crazy. Imagine an ice cream cone factory that is seven Costco warehouses combined. That's just astronomical. Nuts. And like, that's how you get to 15 million to 20 million per day. I mean, like that, I, I kind of like yeah. just breezed by that number when I first saw it. And then I was thinking about it, like 15 million to 20 million of anything is crazy. Hmm. The second reason I think that Joy has really kind of continued to take over this industry is because they keep it simple. They only stock classic cake, sugar, and waffle cones. And they talk about how the cone is really just meant to be kind of like it's almost like the best supporting actor, right? The ice cream is is up for best actor you, or best actress, whatever. You want your cone to be simple. You want it to kind of complement the ice cream. You don't want anything crazy going on with it. And Joy just relishes this. They just want their cone to be simple. They've been making cones for so long that now they have this dynamic where everybody thinks of an ice cream cone and they taste a Joy cone. And so they're kind of tapping into consumers' nostalgia. It's pretty crazy, Zach. You wax so poetically about cones. I can tell that you <laughs> You are truly a fan of cones. I am a you, fan of cones. Yeah. My wife is an ice cream fanatic. Um, so we definitely talk cones here from yeah. time to time. As you would imagine, I think in any industry, there are going to be people that are kind of trying to differentiate, right? And they're trying to figure out a new angle into owning an industry. And there are sure. startups that are now trying to kind of make all of these flavored cones and, and make their cones go way beyond kind of the traditional waffle, sugar, cake variety, right? Hmm. And it's funny, I think some of them are doing pretty well, but a lot of ice cream shops, if you read this piece from the Times, are basically like, I just don't want to rock the boat. Like, you know, when you introduce all of these new cone flavors, like the number of choices people can select from just get out of hand, the flavor profile gets out of hand. Like there are all Mm -hmm. these reasons that they're like, just take me back to joy. I just don't want to have to think about it. And honestly, like, If you're Joy, that's just music to your ears because it's like we've kind of established that this is how it works and now people are going to come to us all the time. Yeah, I feel like some of the most successful companies in the world just identify what they're good at. They keep it simple. They don't screw with stuff. Like I think of like Asics running shoes. They're just like ugly running shoes. They're consistently good. They don't really shake things up too much. You know what to expect. Dude, exactly. You know, I think there are a lot of us cone purists out there. We don't want like a pistachio flavored cone. No. We want a 
delicious, non-offensive cone that is going to support the ice cream, you know? Exactly. I want that cake cone that has that kind of like squared pattern on it that for the last couple Mm -hmm. of bites, it's probably going to cut my gums a little bit because (laughs) it's kind of like sharp on the bottom. Like, oh yeah. Even though it hurts, I I love the pain. (laughs) It reminds me of earlier times. (laughs) Oh man. You hit on one thing that I think is really good about Joy Baking Group, right? So they know what they're good at. They've identified it. They're not trying to completely reinvent the wheel or anything like that. The other thing that's really good about them, I think, is they've only increased the price of cones a few cents per cone over the last decade, which has tracked roughly with inflation. So it's not like they're out there using their monopolistic power to just kind of extract as much money as they possibly can from these ice cream shops. I think they understand that it's kind of a symbiotic thing. Like if it gets too expensive for the cones, shops are going to shut down. The margins aren't good enough. And, you know, it's going to turn people away from ice cream or it's, you know, going to end up putting them out of business. And so they've kept their prices in check. And it's interesting. One expert actually thinks that in the next three to four years, they're going to have an even stronger grip on the ice cream cone industry just because of this kind of compounding equipment and scale advantage that they have. It's wild. So one more thing I want to throw in here that this reminded me of is we did a story in our Sunday email a while back about a different ice cream company that has Monopoly. Yeah. There's another company that has Monopoly on, you know, like those music boxes on the top of ice cream trucks? Yes. When they drive through a neighborhood, you hear the great entertainer or something. Of course. So one company makes 97% of all music boxes that are used to play the jingles. Wow. It's this tiny Minnesota-based company called Nichols Electronics, and they have a virtual monopoly on creating the music boxes that go on top of these trucks. It's a very specific tool that you need to broadcast the ice cream to the neighborhood. That's amazing. But long story short, if your goal in life is to form a monopoly, maybe you should look into the ice cream business. A hundred percent. And like, if ice cream cones are tapping into nostalgia, then that company is tapping into nostalgia even more because that song literally Mm -hmm. is like nostalgia in action. It's like, oh, wow, I just heard that song. I want ice cream. That's weird. What happened? Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. All right, that's going to do it for us today. If you liked what you heard today, we've got a lot more tech and business coverage over at thehustle.co. Our editor is Robert Hartwig and our executive producer is Darren Clark. Thanks for tuning into the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network, and we're going to see you next week. Mm-hmm.